I want you to think about something with me for a second. Now, honestly, think about this. Can you imagine if everybody stopped giving to the church? I mean, nothing at all, no money coming in. And let's be honest, we need the money to keep operating. I got thinking about this, and I think this would be our only option. And let me know what you think. This Sunday, 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 join us at the Megacola Worship Center as U.S. Carland and National Rental proudly present our pastor in his finest performance yet. His compassionate and honest sermon titled A Penny for My Thoughts Because We Could Really Use It will be available for download for a low, low price of only 99 cents. Plenty of seats are still available for this Sunday's baptism. Sponsored by Anderson's Pool and Spa, the first 100 guests will receive a free T-shirt from Adam's Touchless Car Wash with the saying, My Dad Was Baptized and all I got was this lousy t-shirt. And back by popular demand, it's our spectacular two-for-one communion special. Buy one for $4.99 and receive a second one absolutely free. But wait, there's more. Pre-order in the next 30 seconds and we'll double the offer. That's right, four communion specials for only $4.99. Just pay separate distribution and handling fees. Be sure to take advantage of our discounted cube cushion rental option. Don't miss out on these ultra-soft pillows brought to you by Sleepy's Mattress Factory. Dis- Discounted service tickets are available at the Record Barn, 2nd Avenue Pump and Go, and the Church Box Office. Be there. I mean, just think about it. <laughs> what other choice are we going to have? Good morning. I love it. My dad was baptized, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. Good stuff. As Ross said today, we're talking about some of your questions about uh, giving and, and life's priorities. But, you know, it's always surprising to me when I read obituaries in the uh, newspaper and the defining trait of someone's life is that they were a Steelers fan or a Browns fan or a diehard Buckeye fan. You know, you see these things all the time. Now, there's a funeral for you. All right? The first line of the obituary reads, Bob Smith died on February 10th, 2011. He loved the Buckeyes. In fact, his house was painted scarlet and gray. So was his car, his basement, and his dog. Bob took a home equity loan to purchase season tickets for the Buckeyes for the last 44 years. Bob almost didn't get married because he suffered a severe depression following the Buckeyes' 1969 loss to Michigan. You know, whenever I read obituaries in which the defining characteristic of an individual is that they were a Buckeye fan or a NASCAR fan, I I hope that they were as passionate about their family and other areas of their lives. I mean, it would be sad to focus one's entire life on something so trivial. Now, that's coming from somebody who rejoiced when the Buckeye game was announced at 5.15 today, so I could both speak here and be in Cleveland. And the guy who's pretty convinced that Peter, James, John, and Luke are going to be doing OHIO in heaven, but so maybe I need to get my priorities a little bit straight myself. So let me ask, what would be the defining characteristic that people would cite when describing you at your, your funeral? You know, what would they say? Wouldn't you love to be uh, defined as, as being somebody who was always for the underdog or consistently kind or that you were generous? Growing up as a kid, which one of these two movie characters did you most want to be like? This is Ebenezer Scrooge, who we would all recognize. He's the principal character in Charles Dickens' 1843 novel, A Christmas Carol. At the beginning of the novel, Scrooge is a cold-hearted, tight-fisted, greedy man. He despises Christmas in all things which give people happiness. Dickens describes him thus, the cold within his froze, uh, within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, 
And he spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. Just everything that is greedy and about me and tight-fisted is summed up in that name, Scrooge. Or how about this guy? Maybe you recognize George Bailey from the movie It's a Wonderful Life. George had spent his entire life giving himself to the people of Bedford Falls. But one Christmas Eve, he is broken and suicidal over the misplacing of an $8,000 loan and the machinations of the evil millionaire, Mr. Potter. All of the citizens of Bedford Falls pray to the heavens to help George Bailey. And if you know the story, as a result, his guardian angel Clarence literally falls to earth and shows him what would have happened to his town, his family, and his friends if he had never been born. George meant so much to so many people, so should he really throw it all away? You know, which one of those two people would you like to be like as people are talking about you in your life? So we've been dealing with a series of questions that you all have submitted. And the first one we're going to tee up today is, why do I feel selfish when I get tired of giving and want to keep things for myself and my immediate family? So let's talk about it. Our focus today is on the grace of generosity and about one defining characteristic of life that might be a goal for every one of us. Now, that might seem to be a strange title for a message, the grace of generosity. But when the Apostle Paul spoke about financial giving in 2 Corinthians 2, 8 and 9, he called the act of giving this grace or the grace of giving a half a dozen times. And so we read, so we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything in faith and speech and knowledge in complete earnestness in the love we have kindled in you, see also that you excel in this grace of giving, this grace of giving. And so as we begin, let's take a look at what generosity might be defined as. You know, generosity is the trait of giving without coercion. Often equated to charity as a virtue, it's widely accepted as a desirable trait in society. Generosity can also be spending time, money, labor for others without being rewarded in return. I like that. It can be time, it can be money, it can be labor, it can be whatever, without the expectation that I'm going to be rewarded in return. It's not based solely on one economic status, but it's based on the individual's pure intention to look out for society's common good and give whatever it is that we have and whatever we are from the heart. So why practice generosity? I would suggest that first and foremost, it is the ultimate win-win. People who give and people who receive feel great and are blessed. When people are generous, great things happen in them and happen through them. And generosity is not just a high calling for a few. But when you're generous, it's the smartest, most intellectually sound decision you'll ever make, both for this life and for eternal life. Interesting book by Stephen Post, Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Healthier, Happier Life by by the Simple Act of Giving. Oh, there's a book worth buying. Uh, Who is Stephen Post? He is a professor of preventative medicine and director of medical humanities at Stony Brook University. And he has a number of scientific studies that he cites in this book that I thought were very interesting. The first one, he quotes a study that looked at preteens who were surveyed in the 1920s in Berkeley, California, and then followed throughout their lives. Those who displayed generosity and a giving attitude grew up to have lower rates of heart disease and depression than those who, as preteens, were very selfish. A study done at Harvard showed that people's immune system were strengthened simply by watching a film about Mother Teresa, who lived a life of, of giving. 
They've done MRIs on people and have discovered that part of the brain, the part of the brain that releases the feel-good chemicals, lights up when people think about giving. Hormone levels tied to compassion and peace rise when people exhibit generous behaviors. In fact, they've done studies on people with wounds, physical wounds, and they find that they heal more quickly when the people are engaged in acts of giving. One study showed that those who go to Alcoholics Anonymous and then help other alcoholics have nearly double the recovery rates of those who go to AA and only try to recover themselves. You see, being generous is good for you. In a society when it's always what's in it for me, being generous is good for us. Giving our lives away is good for us. In the ancient wisdom literature called Proverbs, we're taught how God designed a life so that we can prosper and bless others. And we see some of these scriptures. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. The generous will themselves be blessed for they share their food with the poor. So many times in scripture we read over and over and over again about the wisdom of leading a generous life. Jesus himself in Acts 20, 35 said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I don't mean to be crass, but why does it seem that some Christians are spiritually constipated? We keep consuming more and more, but we never give anything away. And then we wonder why we as believers are so spiritually weak. Another reason to be generous is it's because it's who we are. And this quote by Rich Nathan I thought was, was really interesting. He said, the entire Bible tells us that we children of God are not designed to be cups or containers of grace, but rather we are designed to be conduits of grace. We are children, we children of God are not to be, meant to be cul-de-sacs of grace or dead ends of grace as if the grace terminates with us. Rather, we are designed to be highways of grace, pipelines of grace. In other words, the grace of God is meant to flow through us to others and not just for our own benefit. That's powerful. You know, the Almighty God, by His grace on our behalf, He's only changed everything, right? He has set us free from the law of slavery and, and being uh, slaves to sin. He took the punishment, my punishment, upon Himself so that I could have a direct relationship with God, so that you could have a direct relationship with God. He's only changed everything. He gave everything that He was and everything He had for us. You know, the judge himself has, has declared us innocent and granted us access into his presence. And so we who have been wrapped by Jesus Christ in his love are recipients of the grace of God. So what is it that we should do with that? You know, we experience the, generation, the generosity of God and we give it away. We get to give. That's always the way it is with God's blessing. We get it to give it. We don't get it to keep it. You know, part of my difficulty with some of the prosperity teaching in the church today is sometimes it sounds like I want to get, and it's all about me. It's not all about us, right? We get it to give it. God designed you and he designed me, designed us to be flow-through people, flow-through. But the grace of God just flows through every part of our lives. You take a look at a quote by Stanley Tam. Who was this guy? Stanley Tam was the founder of U.S. Plastics Court and the author of God Owns My Business. And he said, the way to defeat the power of money is to give it away. Now, he knew what he was talking about. He has a miraculous story about how that business even started. But Stanley Tam um, grew up, and as his business grew and grew, he decided to reverse tide. He gave 90% to God's kingdom, and he lived on 10. And then the company started giving 90% away. And then he gave his company away. 
Interesting man, interesting story, powerful story. But when he says the way to defeat the power of money is to give it away, he knows what he's talking about. You see, all that Jesus teaches us about giving and generosity flows from this assumption that you and I have been changed by receiving the grace of God. And so that our orientation towards stuff is different from the rest of the world's. Jesus is saying, you, my children, have received my grace. Therefore, your goals in life should change. You should no longer run after what the pagans run after or aim at. More stuff, more things. You don't have to hold on to your stuff with a death grip the way the pagans do. Instead, you, my children, are called to represent me to the rest of the world. I am generous. Therefore, you be generous. And the Bible repeatedly tells us over and over and over again that being generous isn't some obligation, some albatross around our neck, some burden that we, we have to pay God back for what He's done. Rather, it teaches us that being generous is good for us. So let me tell you one true story. It's an amazing story. pastor was standing in line at a convenience store in New Orleans. He notices a family in front of him that didn't have enough money for the groceries that were buying. The pastor tapped the man on the shoulder and asked him not to turn around, but to please take the money he was offering him. The man took the money he was offered and never turned around to look at the kind stranger helping him. Nine years after that simple act of generosity, the pastor was invited to be a guest speaker at another church in New Orleans. He spoke, and after the service, he was standing by the door greeting people. After almost everyone left, a gentleman walked up to him. And he told the pastor this amazing story about he, how he had come to know God. He said that nine years ago, he and his wife were destitute. They had lost everything. They had no jobs. They had no money, and they were living in their car. They were not Christians at the time, and they had made a suicide pact that included their four-year-old child. They drove to a cliff and quietly discussed their fate and decided that they were going to buy their child some food, one last meal before that they, they killed themselves and killed their child. They were standing in line at the store and they realized they didn't even have enough money to pay for the milk and the bread that they were going to give their, their child. It was at that moment that a man behind them spoke to them and asked them to take the money from his hand and not look back. The man also said to him, and please remember this, Jesus loves you. The man said they left the store with the groceries. They drove back to the cliff and they wept for hours they knew they couldn't go through with what they had planned, so they drove away. As they were driving away, they passed a church that had a sign that read, Jesus loves you. They went to the church the next Sunday, and they both chose to follow Christ and receive his love. The man told the pastor that the moment this pastor stood up and started speaking that day, they knew it was him because of his very distinctive South African accent. They asked the pastor, did you do that for us? And he said, I did. They said that they had been Christians now for nine years, and because of the pastor's simple act of generosity, they didn't kill themselves. Isn't that amazing? Just being obedient, just listening to God's voice, a simple act, how much money for milk and bread, what an impact that had. You know, now almost every one of us has a story about how we have been impacted by generosity. One of the things I'm so excited about is that people here at Quest are listening to God's voice, and as, as he leads them, they're being obedient to what God's telling them to do, stepping out in faith and watching what God's up to. So we're going to hear a testimony about that right now. Welcome, Bill and Julie Workman. Bill and uh, Julie emailed me about a week ago, 
and wanted to talk and told me a story about some of their steps of faith recently in giving, and I wanted you to hear it. Um, when the church did the Above and Beyond campaign a couple of months ago, uh, Bill and I talked and prayed about what um, what we should give, knowing that it should be something, and we didn't have a lot with you know him working, and I'm at home with the kids, and I've got four of them, and um, so we just felt like God was asking us to give $50 a month, which, you know, might be a lot to some people, might not be very much to others. But to us, that was, it was definitely going to be a stretch. And uh, so we made that commitment. We signed the card. We put it in the offering bag. And within a couple of weeks, I had the opportunity to um, do some babysitting and make some extra money. And then Bill, a week or two after that, had his review at work and, um, as a lot of companies, they hadn't been giving raises to people for a couple of years because of the economy, but he received a 3% increase, and um, that was gonna that was gonna be you know a little more than to cover what the $50 that we had committed each month. And then um, God also provided for us by um, we had some expenses to pay and taken care of um, some things on one of our cars and. He kind of kept those things um, from coming to the forefront until we had our tax return money that then we were able to use to take care of those things so that we weren't in a place where, um, you know, we were getting behind uh, before being able to take care of it. So. Cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Simple story of an act of faith, a stretch for them, and God orchestrates the timing. Immediately after they make this act of faith, these things happen and just give them hope that, yes, he can provide this for this act of faith. And, and there's also a couple other things going on that are generous through them. Uh, one is they're headed down to Memphis to spend time and help uh, the Connects as well. So if anybody has something they want to send this week, talk to Julie. And also see this beautiful curly hair here. <laughs> see this? If the youth raise the money that they're challenged to raise, that hair will be gone Shaved off in service April 3rd, along with along with Jeremy and along with our youth pastor and along with Tim West. In fact, it was really funny. Between services, one of our lovely senior citizens of our church, Doris Fraser, came out and said, "Who do I give money to to make sure we get to see a head shaved?" <laughs> and she went and hunted down Jeremy and handed him some cash in a classroom. So. <laughs> Sorry, I should have, maybe shouldn't have said the name, but uh, but Doris is such a sweetheart. So we've got generosity testimonies going on all over the place. Thanks. That is uh, so exciting and so awesome. You know, you you can't outgive this God as he uh, as he speaks to us and asks us to respond to, in obedience to him, including financial ways, not just financial ways, but you cannot give him. He is creative, and He will do whatever it takes to, uh, to bless us. He longs to bless us. No good thing will He withhold from us, says the Scripture, uh, for those who love Him, which is pretty, pretty, pretty cool. So why, if generosity is good for us and good for others, if it's who we are, why are we not more generous? I think that gener- generosity is frequently killed by debt and greed. You know, we've been living through the largest economic downturn since the Great Depression, and Warren Buffett, the brilliant financial investor, has applied this saying to what we've been going through. He said, when the tide goes out, you can tell who is skinny dipping all along. I told my son I was going to use that in church. He said, no, you aren't, Dad. I said, yeah, it's actually on the slide. So, uh, so there you are. 
and he showed up anyway. You know, the average credit card debt per household is $16,000. U.S. consumer debt is $2.4 trillion as of 2010. A stack of all the credit cards at use in America would reach into outer space and be almost as tall as 13 Mount Everest. Isn't that a stunning number? You know, what, what Warren Buffett is saying here is that when bad things happen, you can very quickly tell who's been neglecting financial wisdom, who's been living beyond their means, who's been going naked. It's not just the Wall Street firms, but tens of millions of us have abandoned financial wisdom in the last few decades. You know, over the past 15 years, we've gotten used to borrowing against the home to finance vacations, shopping sprees, expensive weddings, home improvement projects. It's no wonder that at some point this philosophy of using tomorrow's money to pay for today's lifestyles brought the economy to its knees. And since our government is just a reflection of who we are and our desires, it's no wonder that government debt has been piling up to the breaking point. You know, we financed two wars in the last decade and put the entire cost on the national credit card. Around the country right now, there's story after story being written about the looming debt crisis facing municipalities and states. And, you know, that's what I do for a living. I'm in the financial business. It's an amazing time pitting neighbor against neighbor, taxpayer against public employee, because cities and states just don't have the money. Now, collectively, at a local level across America, we're facing $2 trillion in unfunded pension obligations. Cities like Detroit's and Los Angeles have contingency plans for going bankrupt. Municipal bond ratings are being downgraded. And over the next couple of years, we as a country are going to have to pay the piper. You know, you can only kick the can down the road for so long. And what's the result of all this debt uh, and greed personally, governmentally? The result is that generosity is strangled. You know, when we're overwhelmed by overspending and immediate gratification, we don't have any money left over to give away to people in need. The same thing is true with governments because revenues and expenses have been so out of whack for so many years, there's not room to help the neediest people in society. We don't have the money to help today because for years we've been spending money as if there was no tomorrow. Well, tomorrow has come and generosity has been choked by, by debt and by greed. A similar attack has been waged by worry and fear. You know, worry is one of the great generosity killers. We're afraid about our own futures and what we'll have and that we won't have enough and we can't open our hands. We just keep those things closed. Even though we know that God wants us to give, fear strangles generosity. Well, what if I don't have enough? Well, what if I lose my job? What if? What if? You know, fear. I've got to hang on to what I have. So we don't give generously. And we take a look at what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He says, don't worry. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, what you drink, about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can you add, can any one of you, by worrying at a single hour to your life? And then he continues, and why worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed as, as one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Now let me be clear. Jesus isn't opposed to planning for the future. But planning is not worrying. Jesus is not opposed to investing for the future. 
Investing is not worrying. Planning and investing for your family, for your own financial future, is encouraged by the Bible. You're going to hear some more of that next week. You know, just some of the the, uh, uh, scriptures from Proverbs that tell us that. You know, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as sure as haste leads to poverty. That God wants to bless us. That being prudent is okay. It's good to plan. It's good to save. It's good to think about your kid's education. All of those things are good. It's the worry part that God tells us not to do. Now, it may be easy for us to say, well, yeah. I mean, that was then. Um, You know, he's telling us not to worry. And by the way, he was God. Um, But he doesn't understand the problems that I'm going through. You know, he just doesn't get it. That's pretty unrealistic, isn't it, Phil, today in this economic climate we live in? But we need to remember who's speaking these words. Dr. Helmut Thielich preached a sermon on the Mount in Stuttgart, Germany in 1946, immediately following World War II. So he's talking to a congregation about the scream of the air raid sirens that alerted people to more bombings, to the devastation, to the deaths, the bombs just falling out of the sky almost nightly on them. And here's what he said. I think this is pretty profound. He says, we know the sight and the sounds of our home collapsing in flames. Our own eyes have seen the red blaze. Our own ears have heard the sound of crashing, falling, and shrieking. Against this background, Jesus' command not to worry, but to look at the birds and the lilies might seem hollow. Nevertheless, I think we must stop and listen when this man whose life on earth was anything but bird-like and lily-like, points to the carefreeness of the birds and the lilies, were not the somber shadows of the cross already looming over this hour of the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, he knew where he was going, right? He knew what his mission was. This guy didn't have an easy time on this planet. He lived anything but a trouble-free and pressure-free life. He was constantly hounded from one town to another, falsely accused. You know, even his own family thought he was deranged. He was misunderstood by his friends. Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It wasn't an easy walk for him as he went through and gave his own life, knowing that he was going to die the death that he did. You know, maybe he knew a little bit more about pain and suffering and in the economy and in wars and things than, than we might give him credit for. You know, the Apostle Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. This was written when he was in prison. And as you know, he would eventually uh, be martyred and die. It wasn't like he had a carefree life either, but they're saying, don't be anxious, don't worry, don't worry. And by the way, don't worry, Right? And one of the things I think we want to understand is worry comes from outside of us. If these guys didn't have to worry, where's worry come from? Because they had some pretty bad circumstances. You know, what, where worry comes from is inside of us. That's, that's what Jesus is telling us. It comes from inside. And you say, well, Phil, I've got good reason to worry. You don't understand the financial pressure I'm going through. You know, you don't understand the medical issues that, that I'm facing or my family's facing or this relationship problem that I have. I have good reason to worry. And God through Scripture tells you and me that we don't. We don't ever have a reason to worry. Now, that doesn't mean that our circumstances aren't very hard, and it doesn't mean that some of you aren't facing incredibly challenging times. But worry, being fearful, according to Jesus, is a choice that you have and that I have. 
We can choose to believe that God's in control, that he will provide for us, his children, all that we need when we need it. Or we can choose to believe that we alone in the, are, are alone in the universe and that we have to make our own way. That it's just up to us. We can choose one of those two things. So, you know, how might we move beyond those worries and fears and become more generous? I think, you know, discovering a bigger purpose in life would be a good place to start. You remember that old bumper sticker, the person who dies with the most stuff wins? He who has the most toys wins. Now, there was an interesting life philosophy, huh? But, you know, Jesus had something else to say about that. He said, watch out, be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of, of possessions. Who do you think knew more about life, the bumper sticker maker or Jesus? You know, maybe the living God had something going on and he understood that there was something far more, a big purpose, a reason for us to live, a reason for us to give our lives away. We also can be helped by, by knowing that being generous is helped by discovering that everything belongs to God. You know, some people struggle with that because it's all about me. And if I'm going to make, make it happen, then I'm going to make it happen because it's up to me. You know, I just don't see that the handouts taking place. But look at First Chronicles 29, 10 through 16 with me. Pretty interesting um, passage of Scripture here. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, Lord. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks to you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. He provided all the blessings. We're just giving some of it back. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight as were our ancestors. Lord, our God, all of this abundance we have provided for building a temple in your holy name comes from your hand. All of it belongs to you. Now, there's a recognition that even the ability that you have and that I have to earn money, to have a job, to think, those gifts came from God. Those opportunities as he, as he opens up doors for us. And by the way, he owns it all anyway. We're not going to take any of it with us. He owns it all. It all belongs to him. Four times in this text, King David says, everything belongs to you. The Bible teaches that God is the owner of everything, and that means everything. Your job, your home, your car, your body, your 401k, your spouse, your children, your, your grandchildren, everything. Everything we have that came from God is good, but he owns it. And he wants us to be conduits of that blessing. You know, he wants to bless us. He longs to bless us. No good thing will he withhold from us. But not to keep it, but to let it flow through us to bless other people. We had a couple of really good questions about, all right, so how much? How much should we give? Is tithing a New Testament principle or did that go away with Jesus and the teaching of the New, of the, uh, New Testament? Isn't the New Testament principle cheer, to giving cheerfully, as Paul says, not tithing, meaning that I should give just what I feel good about giving? So those are good questions. You know, a couple of thoughts. Um, we see the words of Jesus as he's talking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. You've given a tenth of your spices, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. 
Now, that would appear that he's saying to them, you know, there's far bigger fish to fry here. You know, this thing about being faithful to God and about justice and about mercy and, and loving the Lord God, that's where you, where you need to be. But it's important to note that he's not criticizing them because they tithe. So, you know, perhaps this is Jesus saying, hey, this is alive and well and something that we should be considering today. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, it actually speaks of three tithes that totaled 23.3% of the agricultural income. It's interesting. And the picture was that when people brought their tithes for these celebrations, it was to be a joyful celebration. It was to be a time of rejoicing, sharing with each other, sharing with people in need, sharing with the, the church, the Levites, thanking God for his provision. That was the picture. Some because of the mention of tithe, which means a tenth in the Old Testament. Many, you know, many Christians conclude that by giving 10%, they fulfill God's requirement and they are absolved of further responsibility. You know, interestingly, the tithe is mentioned only four times in the New Testament. And some have said, well, because of that, because there's no, no, no real great teaching there, um, we don't have to do that anymore. It's just whatever I want to give in my heart. But I think this is so not because God expects less than the majority of us, but because far more is possible. You know, because Jesus has accomplished our redemption, we live in the age of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells us if we, if we accepted Christ. Appealing to the tithe laws seems to be trivial. The standard of giving in the New Testament is in many ways more radical, rooted in the command to love God with all we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's what he's asked us to do, to love God with every ounce of our being and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, there's, there's a tough command. You know, as New Testament believers, we have more of a revelation. We have the Holy Spirit, and the, the, uh, more of the Holy Spirit than the Old Testament believers did. God reasonably envisions greater things from us. Those who choose to tithe should think of it as training wheels for a career of ever-growing Christian giving. A person who has faith in Jesus Christ doesn't worry about whether tithing is commanded in the New Testament. Such a person is transformed by Christ to be more like him, to be generous. Such a person wants to give as much as possible to support the gospel and people in need. Now, it's really important, though, for us to, to understand this. Christians should give generously, but it is a result of our relationship with God, not a way to earn it. We don't give to, to earn it. We are given grace through faith, not through tithing, not through giving. So we're commanded to be generous on every occasion, but it's not a way to, to earn our, our, our life, our way to God. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided to give in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So there's that phrase, we should give what we've decided to give in our hearts. But in the context of that sentence, he is challenging us to be uh, big-time givers, to give generously so that we may reap generously, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul's not saying that I should give what I feel good about. He's inviting us to a cheerful, free attitude in our giving. Right? He's trying to shape our attitude toward giving, and he continues... And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all you need, you will abound in every good work. As, as, as it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. 
Listen to this. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. That's powerful. You know, I love the phrase, he who supplies seed to the sower. You know, if we sow generously, we will reap generously. Who gives us the seed to sow? He does, right? Everything comes from him, including the ability that we have to go out and create wealth. It's all his. And if we're obedient, he will bless us in amazing ways. Some people act as if Christ liberates us from the law so that we can keep more for ourselves. This is false. He liberates us from the penalty of the law so that we can be free to serve him more as loving children, not merely as slaves. He frees us so that we can have faith instead of selfishness. So when it comes to money, the real question is this, where's your heart? I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's all about that. It's always about where your heart is. That's what the New Testament teaches us. One last question, do we tithe on the gross of the net before taxes or after taxes? What's the Bible say about that? Well, you know, I, I don't think we can find that, that verse um, to just pin that one down on taxes. But I, I will say this. I think there's a very strong um, um, theme throughout Scripture that we are to give God the first fruits, the very best, not the leftovers. And that is scriptural. So, you know, perhaps giving the first fruits means pre-tax. Maybe it means after tax. I don't know. One of the things that Melissa and I have taught our sons is this. You know, do you want God to bless your pre-tax or your after-tax tithe? Be generous and just see what he does. Right? So I don't know that we can just pin that one down, but I, I will tell you that, you know, clearly the first fruits, I think, is what God has asked us to give, not, not what's left over. So how do we become more generous with our stuff it's by reminding ourselves that God is the owner of everything. And a starting point, not a finishing point, is reminding ourselves that we can engage in some practice of tithing, some giving back to God, some representation, whether that's 10% or 30% or 90% or whatever it is, just giving back to this God who has given so much to us. So as we close, let's, uh, let's focus on these 10 apples. Let's, um, let's suppose that they represent your income and my income. And God says to you that in order to recognize that he owns everything, he wants you to set aside one of those apples and give it to his kingdom before you consume the other nine apples, the first fruits. Give me this one apple back so that you can acknowledge to me that I own everything. And again, maybe that's more than one apple. Who knows what it might be. But here's the problem. You know, our lifestyles are such that nine apples aren't enough for us. I mean, how can I buy everything I want and pay my bills with just nine apples? Matter of fact, I need more than ten, so I'm going to borrow, right, which is a whole different story. Uh, so we think, you know, the Lord's not going to mind if I take just a little bite out of the apple. I mean, after all, there's a vacation that I really want to take, and I think it's important. And so we take a bite out of the apple. It's holy to the Lord. And then we say, well... Yeah, and I want to send my kids to private school. It's a Christian school. But even though the money is really going to my family, the Lord won't mind if I take another bite out of his apple. And then there's this medical emergency that's caught me by surprise. And by the way, I really need a new car. And with every single expense, we take a bite out of the apple that belongs to the Lord. And pretty soon, all that's left over is that core. And we say, God, here is your portion. You know, God has something better for us than that. 
for you and for me. He wants us to experience the peace and the joy that comes when we learn to be open-handed and generous with our giving to the kingdom and our giving to those in need. He is generous. He has blessed us with everything that we have. And He is calling us to be generous, not only with our money, but with our lives, with our time, with our prayers, with our acts. But yes, financially, to be obedient to Him with our money. So as we close in prayer, I just want to challenge you with that. Just spend time with God. You know, God, how would you just uh, touch my heart, touch our hearts if we're married, that you know, next week you're going to hear ways that you know, perhaps you can uh, have some financial wisdom applied so that if you're in a place where, where you have that debt or something and you're not able to be generous, maybe you can work your way out of that to a place that you really can live a life of generosity and giving your life away and receiving the blessing that God has for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for the uh, overwhelming ways that you've blessed us. And I pray, Lord, that for each one of us today in this place that um, we could set aside the busyness of uh, the week behind and the, the day ahead and that we could just spend a moment in uh, rest in your presence and just be grateful people, Father, for you have created a way that despite our sin, that we can be one with you, that we can be in relationship with the living God.